Every king has his throne. Little Joey Naples' throne was a tall back leather chair in an immaculate office in a bricked up building on the outskirts of Youngstown. It's the late 80s, and Naples runs the city from this office in his vending company, Youngstown United Music. Every day people line up outside to meet with him. Everybody from concerned city councilmen to people on hard times who need a little cash to pay the mortgage. But in the quiet moments between patrons, little Joey sits on his throne and thinks about what it costs to get here. His brother Sandy had run the rackets in the 60s until a hit squad killed him and his girlfriend. A Couple of years later, Joey's brother Billy was blown up by a car bomb right in front of him. Joey wasn't the biggest or toughest Naples brother. But he got tough, and he was smart. Smart enough to know that sometimes, if you want revenge, you have to wait. So he waited, until the early 80s, when he arranged a meeting with one of the guys who ran the Cleveland faction, hot-headed Charlie Carabia. Naples met Carabia at a place called the Stardust Motel with another Pittsburgh soldier, a dark-haired gangster named Lenny Strollo. The rumor is that they rolled Charlie Carabia up in a rug. The body was never found. After that, Joey and Lenny Strollo became made guys. With Cleveland dead or in jail, they ran Youngstown together under the old man, Pittsburgh boss, Briar Hill Jimmy Prado. Sitting on his throne at Youngstown United Music, Joey knows that when Prado is gone, he'll take over. And things are sweet, at least for now. Joey's throne is still in the office at Youngstown United Music, but now it's occupied by this guy, Artie Saramelli. You know how often I sit in this chair? Probably five times in the last 10 years. I'm a very superstitious guy. Everybody who sat in this chair, they died of unnatural causes. In a three-piece suit and sporting a pinky ring, Artie keeps the office much like Joey kept it. On the wall behind him, a huge photo of a gangster's car riddled with bullet holes. On the wall in front of him, a portrait of New York boss, John Gotti. People don't understand this business. They think every vending company is operated by a gangster. That ain't true. I don't consider myself a gangster. I'm a businessman. I was groomed by the best. The best. Artie first walked into this office back in the 70s, when little Joey Naples was still running things. If you had a problem, you come down here and you see him. Was I intimidated? Joey was a type of guy that buried two of his brothers. So how do you feel he was? He was ruthless. He was a businessman, and then on the other hand, just don't do anything stupid. I came walking in this office, and Joey said to me, what can I help you with, young man? And I told him I wanted to buy a bar on Glenwood Avenue. And that there was another vending company in that bar at the time. He said, go get that bar, come back and talk to me. I bought that bar for $10,000. We named it the Sugar Bowl. 
It was the hottest nightclub for 21 to 30 years old. The Sugar Bowl was wall-to-wall with Joey Naples' machines. Pac-Man, Gallica, pinball machines, pool tables, foosball tables. It was loaded up pretty good. Artie kept the bar packed, and every quarter that got pumped into those machines went to Joey Naples with no paper trail. Joey got a real liking to me. He just loved the way that I moved. Working with Joey, Artie opened another location, and another. He was young and had more money than he knew what to do with. Living in a $90,000 home, opened up a closet and had 30 suits in it, driving a brand new Cadillac, walking through kitchens to get the best table in the restaurant while you got 40 squares outside waiting to get seated. I love eating steak and lobster. I like fine wines. That's what it's all about, my man. And through it all, Joey was Artie's mentor. You guys are really close. Family, yes. What do you think he saw in you? The next boss of bosses. But in the late 80s, the boss was still 81-year-old Briar Hill, Jimmy Prado. Prado didn't like Artie, and the feeling was mutual. I went to get money off of him one time. I needed some cash. You know what that asshole did? He told me, show me your hand. I showed him my hand. He rubbed his hand over my hand. He goes, oh, you don't work. <laughs> he goes, you don't work. <laughs> I looked at this piece of shit, and I said, fuck you, and I walked out. That's how Artie got his nickname. Artie C. from Briar Hill. Never worked and never will. <laughs> at that point, Jimmy Prado wasn't doing much for the organization. But his boss, he was still taking the biggest cut of the profits. Jimmy Prado, he was just a total dog. When he died, we went to the calling hours to make sure the prick was dead. When Jimmy Prado died in 1988, people from Youngstown lined up around the block to pay their respects. Politicians, local businessmen, cops, and of course, little Joey Naples and his crew. Sitting across the aisle from Naples was his dark-haired counterpart in Youngstown, Lenny Strollo. Lenny had been running the gambling rackets in town for Prado. Lenny was always jealous of Joey. Joey could care less about him. The crew that Lenny used to have with him was the jack-offs that we didn't care for down here. Now, Briar Hill Jimmy Prado was laying in a casket in front of them. And it was already decided. Joey was going to be the next boss. Lenny was pissed about it because now they have nobody. They can't run out to see Jimmy. Now, that's where they more like had to get in line. They have to come to Joey. They have to. As pallbearers carried Prado's casket away, Lenny Strollo's chances of ever being boss faded before his eyes. As long as Joey Naples was around, Naples would run things. Lenny was a pig. <laughs> he was a pig. Artie's philosophy was this. In life, you have pigs and you have hogs. Pigs eat a lot, but hogs? Well, hogs try to eat everything. Hogs are greedy. You had a few pigs that wanted to get everything, and they declare war, and now look what they did. I'm Mark Smerling. 
and this is Crooked City. Three carloads of agents hit United Music Company on Wilson Avenue, the headquarters of Rackets figure Joey Naples. Joey was really the one running everything. If you wanted your place burned, if you wanted something stolen, you know you could go down there. Joey Naples' black Lincoln was parked on the side of the building. Pinto comes out first and he crawls under the car to make sure there's no bomb on it. Chapter 8. Pigs, Hogs, and a Beef. I'm a worker. Understand this. I'm a worker. That's me. Artie C. from Briar Hill, who never worked and never will, worked for Joey Naples. And he'd been given a new assignment. Report to a windowless building on Wilson Avenue, right across from the steel mill and help park the cars of the guys who showed up. The guy that was there before I took his job, he was found dead in the garbage dump. And there was a position open. Not that I care, I got a job. Artie kept his mouth shut and his ears open. He knew he had to start at the bottom and work his way up. It's like a kid going to school. Go through first grade, you go to second grade, third grade. And, you know, if you could be so educated, you might skip five through nine, and all of a sudden you're at ten. After a while of parking cars and keeping a lookout, Artie got moved inside to work the tables at the biggest illegal casino in the country. There only was one big club like that, the All-American Club. Ten thousand square feet. 100 to 300 people on a Friday night. Had a bar set up in it, slot machines along the wall. I was dealing blackjack, craps. I dealt bar boot too. Bar boot, the dice game of choice for Ohio mobsters. Fast game, fast game. There's an old saying, if you ever want to break somebody without killing them or something, just introduce them to the game of bar boot. They will be busted. The casino was on the second floor of the All-American, but downstairs was where the real money was handled. On the ground floor was the numbers bank, the place where the bets and proceeds for the illegal mob run lottery were held. A lot of money. A lot of money, like that. A lot of money. At its height, the All-American was pulling in $20 million a year. And every week, Lenny Strollo and Joey Naples sent their guys to the numbers bank to keep an eye on the count. Lenny had his guy watching his end. Joey had his guy watching his end. So then at the end of the night, they put in a cigar box for this place and that place. And there it is. Even though Lenny was running the gambling operation, Joey was the boss, and he got the biggest cut of the profits. Somebody's getting fat. It wasn't me. There were no signs on the All-American Club, and no windows. From the outside, you wouldn't know what was happening inside, unless you hung around and watched. 
we could observe what was going on at the All-American Club. There was a gambling casino operating on the second floor. FBI agent Bob Croner was still on a crusade to end organized crime in Youngstown. And he'd been surveilling the All-American Club to try to take down the mob's biggest cash cow, the numbers racket. On the first floor was a numbers bank. They didn't want us nor the bad guys to know that that was the numbers bank because the money and the numbers would eventually come here. Before the state lottery existed, there was the numbers, a daily drawing run by the mob. And in Youngstown, everybody from hardened thugs to little old granny seemed hooked. To play, you pick a three-digit number and place a bet at a corner store, bar, or barber shop. And then the numbers runner would come to collect everyone's bets and bring them back to the numbers bank. He made something like 29 stops till maybe 6, 6.30. At the end of the day, the numbers runner would pull up to the All-American Club and knock on the bank door. And it would be funny because sometimes he'd come and he'd look around and talk into the mail slot to somebody that was in the numbers bank. And he would shove all the numbers in through that mail slot. At 7.30 p.m. every day, the numbers were drawn and winners were determined. The bets were often small, two or three dollars, but they added up to a multi-million dollar business. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The gambling was the the blood of the family. I mean, that's what kept everything moving. They could take the proceeds from that and put money out, loan sharking, buy this cop, buy this politician. FBI agent Bob Croner knew that to get to the mob, you have to go after their money. And in the 80s, Lenny Strollo was the guy bringing in all the cash with his numbers racket. Strollo's base of operations was the All-American but he held court out at a motel on the outskirts of town called the Stardust. We knew that people were going, and Lenny was having conversations there. Croner wanted to hear what they were talking about. Every morning about 7, 7.30 a.m., the woman who ran the office would close the office and go down the street here and have breakfast. We knew that we wouldn't be able to get in there and work for very long to try to install microphones. So they sent an undercover agent in to see what electronic devices were in the office, a radio or telephones. Then they got the same device and bugged it for a switch out. We got in there, changed the device while she was out having breakfast, so we had the device in by the time she came back. 
Croner and his agents were nearby in a rented trailer, listening to the fuzzy feet of Lenny Strollo. And beyond the numbers business, they were learning about what was happening behind the scenes, between Lenny and Joey Naples. Lenny really didn't like Joey. I think Joey saw himself as being above Lenny when in actuality they became made members of the family at the same meeting. Lenny didn't believe that Joey should be anybody to tell him what to do. The divide between Lenny and Joey only became more obvious as we were getting into this. Things had gotten so bad between Lenny and Joey they couldn't meet without a mediator, a retired mobster out of Pittsburgh. He had been a longtime member. Here's the new members, and they're just button heads and arguing. And uh, he would sit them down and try to keep calm. In any type of business, I don't care whether it's mobsters or bankers, communication is one of the biggest things to being successful. When communications break down, businesses break down. And I don't think that was any different. There's no question that Lenny Strollo hated Joey Naples. We had a pretty substantial case on Lenny Strollo's numbers business. We felt it was important for us to get into the numbers bank where the guys were working. Early evening on April 3rd, 1987, Kroner and more than 60 other FBI agents pulled up to the All-American Club. They breached the steel door at the rear of the building and poured into the casino, seizing card tables, roulette wheels, and poker chips. They tried to hide some of the numbers and the money and stuff in some old pinball machines that they had stored down there. And we found them during our search. When we opened the refrigerator, there was all this government cheese in the refrigerator that I guess they used to slice up and put it on. Here are these mobsters using government cheese during their gambling games. On the first floor, agents were still trying to gain entry to the numbers bank. They barricaded themselves in there. They had these big U-bolts and then metal or two-by-fours in there. It would have been easier to go through the wall than to go through the door. We finally had to wait till they let us in. Inside, they found everything they needed, piles of cash and thousands of number slips. Across the city, the FBI raided the locations where those slips were written, all the places where they saw the numbers runners stop. Property seized during those raids, nearly 100 poker machines, gambling paraphernalia, and cash. I would characterize this operation as the largest illegal casino operation in the United States. Finally, Kroner pulled up to Lenny Strollo's house, warrant in hand. And we broke the door down to get in. He wasn't very happy about that. Lenny Strollo was arrested at his home on Leffingwell Road in Canfield. According to the government, Strollo controlled the mob's multi-million dollar a year gambling empire in Mahoning County. The FBI took down a lot of Strollo's guys that day. But across town at Youngstown United Music, Joey Naples was untouched. It sure didn't make Lenny Strollo feel any better about me because he always, in his warped mind, thought 
that we were knocking off all his stuff and here's Joey's stuff and we're not touching it. Sitting in a holding cell, Strollo had to wonder, was little Joey giving information to the FBI? I think it further set the divide between Lenny and Joey Naples. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. My dad always told us, you know, don't you do nothing for the mob. He said, they just use people. And it's the truth. That's what they do. This is Emil Dinzio. In episode two, Emil and his brother James try to steal President Nixon's money from a bank in Laguna Niguel, California. But long before that, before Emil was Ohio's most notorious bank burglar, he was just a kid hanging out in his family's restaurant right off the highway. My dad built the restaurant. It was prosperous then. Everybody made money, restaurants, everything. Emil's mom prepared food as truckers drank hot cups of coffee. And because the restaurant wasn't far from Youngstown, the back room had slot machines and pinball machines. Emil and James helped out when needed and played pinball when business was slow. And then one day, Lenny Strollo walked in. Strollo was 18 at the time. A smart kid, he'd made the National Honor Society in high school. But now school was out, and he was working for his uncle, Jimmy Prado. He took care of the machines for Prior Hill Jimmy, and he would come there and clean the machines out. Whenever there was a roll, a few nickels short or something, he'd say, here, shorty. And I'd go right to the back room where there were slot machines on the wall, and I'd put it in a clunk, clunk. Emil went on to commit one of the biggest bank heists in history in Laguna Niguel, California. Unfortunately for him, he got caught. But when he got out of prison, Lenny helped him out. I put out poker machines around this area where the mob controlled it. Lenny Strollo told me, it's okay. Nobody ever bothered me. I liked the guy, he was all right. Big shot, you know what I mean? And he was, he could get you hurt. I mean, he could have people hurt you. Him himself, he wouldn't even crush a grape because somebody else would step on the grape. Were you a grape stepper or? No, no, I stayed out of the way. Despite his father's advice to do nothing for the mob, Emil did the occasional score with Strollo's crew. And around the time the FBI raided the All-American Club and busted Lenny, Emil started to hear a rumor. Joey Naples was an FBI informant, no question about that. Strollo knew that. One day, Emil was at Strollo's place when Naples showed up for a meeting. Joey Naples would pull in there with his bodyguards, Frankie Lentine and Pinto. Lentine and Pinto stood by the car while Naples headed inside to meet with Strollo. Cars going by and they're checking the cars out. Those two assholes, I don't know how they ever got the title as bodyguards for Joey Naples. They're making it look like it's going to be a big hit. They want to be big time, you know, make it look like big time guys. 
I would sit over there by my car and I'd laugh. Inside, I would laugh, not out loud. Even a bank robber like Emil Dinzio could see, Joey Naples was vulnerable. Bodyguards my ass. I could shoot you through the window. Any place I wanted to get you, I could kill you if I want to kill you. Not long after that, Strollo was convicted for the numbers rackets. He served half his sentence in a Texas prison, and the other half in a Youngstown halfway house. It was there, with other guys from his crew, that Lenny plotted. It's the evening of August 19, 1991. Joey Naples sits on his throne at Youngstown United Music, winding down and getting ready to go home for the night. The desk is neat and orderly. The room is immaculate, just the way he likes it. What was this office like when he was in? <laughs> it was beautiful. Artie Saramelli again. Joey was a type of guy. His clothes had to be perfect. Well-dressed, groomed. He would floss his teeth 50 times a day. When he went to get his teeth clean, and you turn around told him there was tartar on his teeth, he'd go nuts. That's the type of guy he was. Joey was building a new house, a mansion surrounded by cornfields on the outskirts of Youngstown. And some nights, he would head out in his white convertible Mustang to take a look. I've never seen anybody be such a neat freak as Joey Naples. FBI agent Bob Croner. It was not uncommon for him to go down in the evenings and go clean up after the workers that were there during the daytime. He had a little guard shack out before the drive that went back to the house. He would pull up to the guard shack and change his shoes into older shoes to then go back to the house to clean up. That day, Joey spent a few minutes sweeping up the construction site until everything was immaculate. Satisfied, he set the broom aside and walked to the guard shack to change back into his good shoes. He walked out of the shack toward his car. If he looked up, he probably didn't see anyone. Dazed, he staggered toward the driver's side door to make an escape. Had he gone around the front of the car, he may have survived. It was dark when I got there. Everybody was already there. And they were removing Joey's body from the scene. So we did a crime scene at the location began an investigation to try to figure out who it was. Agents spread across the property. They searched around the lake in the back and walked through the unfinished brick house. And they brought in police dogs to try to pick up a scent. Eventually, they zeroed in on a cornfield across the street. Parting the stalks, they found cigarette butts and shell casings. Do you know what totes rubbers are that you put to protect your shoes in the wintertime? There were prints of those all over where those were. 58-year-old Joey Naples was found dead in the driveway, shot twice. Naples was ambushed by a gunman hiding in a cornfield near his new home. 
One question many are asking is why Joey Naples was alone without his bodyguards Monday night. I was in a what they call the dollar bank down the street here in a vault counting numbers. And when I came out of the vault to go home, that's when I heard that he died. And what happened next? He's gone. That's it. What do you think? Everybody's going to cry or something? Maybe. Fuck no. What are we going to cry about? You got to realize, I mean, it comes with the job. It comes with the title. If I walked out of this office and took a bullet tonight, I expect within a week somebody would be walking in this door. And that would be it. I think there should be an all-out investigation who killed Joey. I'd be the first one to put up my hand. I want to know why, after 31 years, they have never solved this murder. Who killed Joey Naples? This is one of the lasting mysteries of Youngstown. I talked to FBI agent Bob Croner and some mob insiders to try to answer that question. We didn't have any abundance of evidence that anybody in particular was involved in it. It must have been talked about Lenny. Obviously, yes. Lenny, Lenny would have been someone that you talk, but Lenny was in custody. At the time of the murder, Lenny was still locked up in that halfway house. So Croner started looking at other mobsters who had the opportunity to kill Joey, like his driver, Pinto. Because Pinto's his bodyguard, and Pinto wasn't there that night. Pinto drove Joey everywhere, and he knew that Joey liked to go check out the house he was building. But on the night Joey was killed, Pinto didn't drive him. Could he have been lying in the cornfield with a rifle? No, hell no, no. That's, they, they don't know what they're talking about. Frankie Susani was the young thief who worked with Joey's crew, and he doesn't agree with the Pinto theory. Frankie says that that night, Pinto and another thief were watching a place they wanted to rob. Pinto and Sam were casing a place. When they came home, Sam was walking in, his wife says, hey, you better watch TV, Joey got killed. They were out casing. I know exactly where they were. Do you have an opinion of who killed Joey Naples? Yeah, but I won't say because he's still alive. There's only one suspect. There's only one suspect. One of the places that we went and searched was the Dinzios' house. The Dinzios were Emil and his brother James, the bank robbers from the Laguna Niguel heist. That would have been James Dinzios' house. We had found footprints in the cornfield that were made by the totes rubbers that you cover your shoes with. When we went and searched James Dinzio's house, we found a whole box of those rubbers. They obviously used those a lot. We sent them off to our lab to see if any of those matched the footprints that we found in the killing. Then it came back negative. What are you doing this weekend? You gonna watch the Super Bowl? Yeah, I'll be watching that. 
you going to a party or are you going to watch it with family? Nah, I just watch it at home. In the eight trips we've made to Youngstown over the last year, I've talked to Emil Dinzio almost every time. He's a nice old guy who wants to sit around and chat about his glory days. The heist, the mob, his insistence that back then the FBI was corrupt. But on these trips, I also heard a rumor that Emil and his brother James killed Joey Naples. We talk about Joey Naples? Joey Naples? Yeah. Dave accused me of killing him. <laughs> I don't need to kill nobody. What do I need to kill anybody for? Just let him talk. People were definitely talking. In our research into the murder of Joey Naples, we came across a sworn affidavit from a Pittsburgh mobster named Lou Masco. I have a question for you. Yeah. Do you know a guy named Lou Masco? Pittsburgh Mafia associate. No. Lou Masco became an informant. He said that he was the trigger man for Joey Naples. He, he killed him. And he got the help from the Dinzio brothers. Oh. SFBI does stuff like that. I'm not kidding you. They'll pull shit like that. You're saying that's not true? No, not true. I don't even know them. And if I ever did something like that, you can believe me, okay? I'm going to do it, and ain't nobody else going to be with me. And if James is alive, he'd be with me. But you would trust James? Oh, yeah. Trust him with my life. Did I tell you that Croner told us that the only thing they pulled out of the field, the cornfield, after Naples was killed, were uh, footprints. And the footprints were the old tote rubbers, you know, that when they searched your brother's house, he opened up a closet, and it was just filled with tote rubbers. And he's he him. Never searched his house. Never searched. Never. Honest to God. That's all bullshit. Unbelievable. Yeah. So you're saying you have nothing to do with the murder of Joey Naples? I know nothing about it. Even though I've been accused of doing it, I'm still here. Huh? I ain't going no place. Are they going to arrest me? No. If Emil and James killed Joey Naples, I couldn't tell you why. But over the years, Emil and James had their share of run-ins with the FBI. And there was something that Emil kept saying about Joey over and over. FBI informants, what he was. Not much left to him. Hey, what time's your flight? Ooh, we're gonna leave in the next 20 minutes. We walked Emil to the door so that we could pack up and head out. Outside, there was snow on the ground. As Emil stepped out to go to his car, my producer Catherine looked down at his shoes. He was wearing a pair of totes rubbers. Well, this is a nice little house you had here. You're better off to do the... Yeah, I was like, I'll stay here for a little while. I guess there will always be some question over who killed Joey Naples. But at the end of the day, Frankie Susani says the motive was the oldest one in the book. Yeah, greed. It's always greed. Killings are made because of greed. And although the murder was never officially solved, most of the people we talked to knew who had ordered the hit. Lenny took it all over. Lenny was a hawk. Like I said to you, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. On the next episode of Crooked City, we meet the new boss at Youngstown United Music, Ernie Biandillo. Ernie was the type that he was not going to turn around and take orders from Lenny after Joey died. It wasn't going to happen. 
and up-and-comer Mark Bacho tries to become made in the mob. I was going to earn my button. I was going to kill something for my hero, my Don. Crooked City is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. The show is produced by Catherine Sullivan, Alexa Burke, Olivia Briley, and Zach St. Louis. Ryan Swikert is our senior producer. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling, and Ryan Swikert. Kevin Shepard is our associate producer. Scott Curtis is our production manager. John Cecatelli, our local producer in Youngstown. Fact-checking by Donia Suleiman. Michael Blumenfeld did the mix. Sound design by Michael Blumenfeld and Ryan Swikert. Music by Kenny Kusiak and Marmoset. Our title track is Hurricane Heart Attack by The Warlocks. Continue the conversation with us online by tweeting at Crooked City Pod. That's at Crooked City Pod. If you've enjoyed Crooked City, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening.